0: Good evening, and welcome to this Monday edition of Corbett Report Radio. Of course, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from climbs of western Japan, where it is always, or mostly, sunny. And uh, wherever you may be in the world tonight, I certainly hope that you have your feet up by a roaring fire with a nice cup of hot cocoa, if you live in the northern hemisphere at any rate, to uh, warm yourself up and... Hopefully not too much, because tonight's conversation might get your blood boiling, so perhaps we shouldn't overheat you. But at any rate, I certainly hope you're ready for tonight. We have a guest on the line who I've had on uh, the Corbett Report several times in the past, so people from CorbettReport.com and uh, those parts might know my next guest. He is Dr. Tim Ball of DrTimBall.com, that's D-R-T-I-M-B-A-L-L.com. And we've had several conversations on CorbettReport.com in the past, including uh, I even got the chance to meet him in Victoria once. So we did have a a chat uh, that I recorded, and there's some video of that up on YouTube and on my 2009 Video Archive DVD. And we've had many conversations in the past about one uh, subject that I know has been close to the the life and work and writings and thinking of Dr. Timball for many, many years, and that is climate and climate change so it's great to have him here on the radio program for the first time and i'd like to introduce the radio audience to dr tim ball if you haven't met him already so dr ball thank you so much for taking the time tonight
1: well james thank you for all the opportunities you've given me and i really appreciate the chance to elaborate on things that get such uh, short shrift on the uh, regular media it uh,
0: it certainly and, uh, does Tend to get short shrift, doesn't it? But, but yeah, yeah. we are, we are fighting back. We are winning, starting to win the, uh, the PR battle overall, I think. Um, of course, it, it isn't fundamentally about that. It's about the science, but, uh, but well, it, there is a no, certain element of that politicking that goes on, isn't there?
1: Well, of course, and and uh, one of the things in the emails that were leaked from the Climatic Research Unit, and a lot of people don't know that the people involved with the CRU uh, were key players in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They they were working in both camps. But one of the one of the leaked emails said that um, you know uh, we can't afford to lose the PR battle, and and they talk about the cause. So they they were very aware of what they were doing, and, and um, as I said, there's a PR battle going on right now as they're attempting to offset the fact that their science isn't holding up and people are really starting to ask questions. So uh, we're seeing a lot of things in the media. Um, and, and But it's good, though, uh, James, because as, as they try to defend the indefensible, of course you've got to get a, a more and more outrageous, which simply uh, defeats your purpose.
0: That's, uh, that's exactly the point, and it does get more and more outrageous as the latest uh, intrigue with Dr. Peter Gleick. Is he a doctor? I'm not even sure. Uh, Peter Gleick uh, of, the, of Stanford University? No, I, has, I'm not even sure where it, he's it, from.
1: Yeah, no, he's Stanford, and um, yes, he, he was part of it, and, and maybe that's how we can in, introduce uh, what we want to focus on tonight, it's because Gleick's expertise or uh, it was in water resources.
0: Or ah, interesting, which is the yeah. topic of the evening, actually, so well, that it, would it, be a nice segue. But we, we're coming up on the yeah. first break, but in the 30 seconds or so we have before our first break, perhaps you can just give the uh, short summary bio of Dr. Kimball for the listeners out there.
1: Well, I, I was born in England, emigrated uh, to Canada in 1957, uh, with the Canadian Air Force for nine years, Arctic uh, search and rescue, and, and then uh, lost my flying category, decided to go back to university, and I think that's the way to do it, is when you've got a bit of life experience, and uh, thought, um, because of my flying experience, especially the Arctic, was really interested in weather and climate...
0: Absolutely. Well, there's the music. So we're coming up on the yeah. first break. But as I say, we'll take a short three minute break and we'll be right back with Dr. Timball. Once again, drtimball.com talking about climate and water resources and sustainability and Agenda 21 and much more besides. So stay tuned right there. We'll be right back. Friends. We are here on Corporate Report Radio here on the 27th of February 2012 and the 28th for me here across the Dateline in Japan. And tonight we're talking to Dr. Timball of drtimball.com. Once again, that's dot com, where you can go to find all of the voluminous writings that Dr. Timball has done in the past and links to some of the books and things that he's been involved with. But uh, Dr. Ball, Let's start broaching tonight's conversation, climate change and water resources and uh, sustainability and some of those big issues. And as you said, maybe the recent uh, actions of Peter Gleick might uh, shed some light on, on some of this. So perhaps you can introduce this character to the listeners.
1: Yes, well, I was finishing up talking about my own career, and, of course, as I I said, I went back to university and started studying climate. It didn't take me long studying climate, uh, and, by the way, at that time, global cooling was the great threat, and the CIA were doing studies on the impact of that and we're we're headed that way, but uh, it didn't take me long studying climate to realize that for flora and fauna, which, of course, includes humans, um, the biggest um, or most devastating uh, impact is in droughts. And uh, so that led me into um, a sort of a sideline study in water resources. And I ended up teaching a course in water resources for 25 years and uh, served on several uh, government uh, panels and chaired uh, commissions of inquiry. In fact, even uh, was involved with trying to get a management strategy for an entire drainage basin. And um, but we were talking about Peter Gleick as well, and, and his Expertise was in or is in, in water resources, and um, this is very uh, interesting because he has been compromised by um, his obsession with uh, trying to push a, a, a science, uh, a political agenda in science, because this was the whole objective of the uh, United Nations Environment Program, and Morris Strong, the Canadian who set that up and um and it's it's interesting for another thing this year as well uh james and that is that we're uh, celebrating the 20th anniversary of rio 1992 which was really where agenda 21 started and this whole philosophy of one world government and uh, control of resources and so on and so they're having rio plus 20 in rio de, de janeiro this coming june now um in, in the um, they, they picked up the ideas by the way the United Nations simply uh, through agenda 21 put into uh, political practice and bureaucratic practice um, the concerns and, and the beliefs of, of the Club of Rome and of course Morris strong was a member of that as were uh, several other uh, important people and uh, Blake was involved with that as was Paul Ehrlich. Who who was the one that pushed the overpopulation issue, and and of course uh, a lot of people not aware that um, Ehrlich uh, was publishing co-authoring with John Holdren, who is the science czar in Obama's White House today, and um, they identified in 1974. And, and by the way, what they did was they took the um, Malthusian idea that the uh, the population would outgrow the food supply and argued that the population would outgrow all of the world's resources and that was being accelerated by um, the um, uh, capitalism and its uh, technical arm technology was meant meant that we were using up the resources and that was that was that idea was put out in a book called limits to growth but in 17- 1974 the the um, Club of Rome said that, you know, we've got to find some vehicles to uh, kind of um, carry our political message. We've got we've got to um, scare people, and um, and of course one of these things was the uh, the idea of uh, running out of water. You know, global warming was part of it at that time, and pollution, of course, but running out of water was also listed. And Gleick, uh, un, uh has has um, been the uh, Pusher of that through the United Nations that uh, we're running out of water, and you can look at his own uh, website and his publications on those things, and um, and so um, that that's the uh, the connections. Um, uh, as I said, I just just like with the global warming and the climate change issues, um, these things are being used for political agendas, and therefore. Uh, real science and the truth gets, gets pushed aside, unfortunately, and I've been struggling uh, throughout my career to try and get get all of the facts out there and let people um, make their own decisions outside of, of the um, the fear, the playing on fear, playing on, on their lack of information. So. Those are the connections between, like, and, of course, what's going to be interesting is that he's just announced that he's going to take a a leave of absence from the job that he had, and um, he's been sort of roundly criticized by a lot of people that were supporting him, but because of his expertise in water, um, and that's where they're headed to, they they it's pretty obvious they realize they're losing the battle on the climate change issue as we said at the beginning at the top of the program and and um, they they started to sh- shift to or towards using the water as the next vehicle for the one world government and uh, you know the control of, of everything and uh, one of the ways that you can see that is that in the um, climate change issue and particularly the focus on fossil fuels, uh, they started to push something called peak oil. And this was the idea that, uh, look, we're, we're at the, the maximum, we're, we're at the top of it and, and, uh, we're going to start running out of oil going forward. And therefore we might as well switch to alternate energies before that happens. Well, of course, it's absolute nonsense when you look at the, the tar sands, Athabasca tar sands and, and the, uh, uh all of the discoveries, the shale and so on, that are going on now. But they uh, they started talking about peak water uh, a couple of years ago and the idea that uh, we're going to run out of water. And I don't know if Gleick was involved with this. Um, I, I haven't been able to tra- track that particular terminology to him, but certainly um, the idea has been put out there through the uh, Club of Rome and the, and the United Nations. And um, and so uh, th- this is why it's going to be interesting to see what, what happens with Mr. Glyke. And so what we need to do is, is start to get some information out there to people that water is not a problem, uh, there's no shortage. Uh, there are, as with all resources, distribution uh, issues, uh, areas of extreme amounts of water and areas of deficit. Nowhere is that more... Uh, underline that, in the continent of Africa, where you 've got some of the highest rainfalls uh, across the center of the continent, and then at both the north and the south ends of the continent um, are the, the the huge deserts mean you think the Sahara uh, which is um, just massive in its in its size, and then in the southern half of course the Namib Kalahari deserts uh, across the southern part of africa so so the contrast of of Lots in one place, not enough in another, uh, is, is typified in Africa. But uh, there really is no shortage, and and so we need. That's what we need to start looking at.
0: Well, as you suggest, and I think you, you draw the parallels quite well. There, there are a number of ways in which this this scam or this alarmism has worked in the past in different ways whether that be through the attempt to uh, to uh, impose limits on carbon dioxide or other things by which of course a few people who are well placed in, within that can of course benefit uh, greatly from from being well placed in the emerging market as it were so so specifically how does the peak water mechanism work or how do you envision that would work
1: well, the idea of it is that um, we're running out of water and that um, water is fundamental to uh, life and, and to economies. And by the way, if you, if you think people get excited about oil and, and CO2 and these other things, water is a much, much more uh, volatile issue. And I, I can say that having chaired public hearings on water issues where people have literally threatened to shoot each other. And um, so w- wars over water... Um, many of them have been fought, and of course, the whole development of the u s uh, west uh, is is around that concept and um, but <clears throat> what we what we really need to get people to understand is is that excuse me, as I said, there is no shortage of water, and there are some relative, relatively cheap technologies for producing uh, water and uh, and of course um we have done a, a reasonably good job on cleaning up uh, pollution of water, and um, because that back in the, in the seventies was um, another part of the argument was not only are we running out, but the potable water that we have, that is the drinkable water, is getting badly polluted. And there were stories back at that time of places like the Cayuga River in in, uh, in the Northeast U.S., which was officially declared a fire hazard by the local fire department. Because it was constantly catching on fire, and so there were some serious pollution problems. But so many of those have been either shown to be not an issue or mitigated. Uh, one of them, of course, the, the Great Lakes was a was a big issue, and um, that that has um, pretty well resolved itself. And um, so, uh, it it really the idea about peak water is just simply. To try and, and suggest, look, uh, we're we're at the top of the availability of water. From here on in, it's going to get into shorter and shorter supply, and um, and therefore we we need to have government come in and take control of it all because uh, oh, that's surprise, the surprise surprise
0: that's going to be the uh, the uh, angle that they'll take. I, I could never have imagined it. I hope there's some big international body like the UN that has something up their sleeves. And if, as you mentioned earlier, of course, we have the Rio Plus Twenty coming up very shortly. But unfortunately, we're also about to hit a break, uh, so we'll take another few minutes off and we will regroup and, and come back uh, refreshed after this short break. And, uh, we'll, of course, we'll continue talking to Dr. Tim Ball, and we already have a caller on the line, so we'll come back with your calls right after this. Thank you for listening. This is Corporate Report Radio on Republic Broadcasting. No matter how hard you try, you can't stop us now. No matter how hard you try, you can't stop us now. All right, we're back here on Corbett Report Radio Friends, and tonight we're talking to Dr. Tim Ball of DrTimBall.com about climate change and water resource management and sustainable development and many other things besides. And we already have a caller on the line, so Jorge in El Paso, thank you for calling in tonight. What's on your mind?
2: Uh, Jim, uh, I just wanted to ask uh, a question to Dr. To, Ball. To, uh, well, uh, some time ago, I went to a talk by Jim Tucker from NASA, who has been um, doing uh, studies from uh, using satellite about uh, the depth of uh, the ice sheets on the, uh, the poles, et cetera. Uh, there was uh, somebody asking questions from the audience, and there was a big fight about something. And um, I didn't understand quite uh, all the details, but apparently uh, there is a way – of uh, doing some type of measurements in the moon that uh, would uh, answer most of the questions about global warming. I want to ask uh, Dr. Ball to see uh, uh, if he knows uh, what these type of measurements uh, and how much would that be compared to how much uh, money they are getting, you know, through this uh, uh, carbon taxes. Yeah, there's uh, quite a lot of questions in there, and I'll I'll see if I can
1: uh, sort them out for you. They um, they put up uh, new satellites recently to try and get a better measure on, on what's actually going on, it, both within the Earth system and outside the Earth system. Um, there are several things that have gone on over the years. Technologies, for example, I know from my work um, where we were chasing Russian submarines around the North Atlantic and uh, measuring water uh, temperatures uh, with depth, and a lot of that information is simply not made available. And and uh, technology's not uh, put into civilian practice and and so that there there's some of that going on there is also uh, uh, the ability to detect uh, water underground the groundwater from from satellite information and so on so these are some of the things that they're talking about of course the the knowledge about the earth particularly the arctic ice that you mentioned uh really didn't occur until the uh, satellite was put up there in 1978, uh, it took them a couple of years to standardize the the information that they were getting. So really, we've had um, an actual satellite measure of, of of Arctic ice since 1980, and um, but that's that's a, a pretty short record. I mean, it's just barely 30 years, which is normally considered a minimum requirement to start determining what's going on and I would argue in climate records you need a lot more than that because the climate can change significantly over hundreds of years. So um, I, I without knowing what was actually being discussed at that particular meeting, there has been a, a push uh, towards uh, collecting more data from space, and of course, the satellite information has provided a lot of a lot of, of information. Uh, it has also, and this has been downplayed, and it's another measure of, of of the bias that it has produced information that's contradicted a lot of what uh, has been put out as the official science. And um, so, um, it, the, the difficulty with all of this, and I guess the best way to summarize it is, um, the we've got very limited data. The data that we've got is is not real data. Most of it, it's estimates, and a lot of people don't realize that. And um, we are even at the point where they create a computer model which puts out results, and then those results are used as real data in other computer models, and and of course. Um, when Hubert Lamb formed the Climatic Research Unit, which has been so much in the news with the leaked emails, he said that he formed it because he said we can't possibly determine what effect humans are having if we don't know how much the climate varies naturally. And um, he then said, you know, seven years later, he, he went into retirement, the group that took over, just abandoned all of that uh, attempts to reconstruct natural variability and turned it towards proving that humans were causing change. And uh, the leader of that was Tom Wigley. So um, the the difficulty is, Um, lack of data, lack of knowledge of what's understanding, and I suspect that might have been at uh, the center of some of the the fights that were going
2: on at that meeting you were at. Well, uh, the point was to uh, make a measurement uh, on the moon, send the satellite to the moon and do something there. Apparently the moon is a good uh, record keeper of uh, the uh, solar activity, and it would tell us about variability of the sun.
1: Uh, Okay, that's a different issue, yes. Um one of the things that uh, we we need to determine is how much the sun varies over time and um we can we can do that uh, with some measures on earth you know the carbon fourteen carbon twelve and those t- sorts of ratios and um, and there are other other indicators of solar activity but um yeah, the, the, uh, the moon would be uh, recording that. And, of course, one of the beauties of it is that you don't have the atmosphere in between to uh, interfere with, with the actual direct changes in, in the solar radiation. And, and the sun um, is the big issue in all of this because the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change effectively have ignored it. And they continue to do so, by the way, in their proposal for the, the next report they've got coming out, what's called AR-5. So, yeah, the, 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 um, I'm not familiar with the details of what they're doing on
2: the moon, but, but that would be a very valuable contribution. Uh, who would have to do it, N- NASA or the European Space Agency, or uh, how much would it be? Why is it that they're not interested Well, uh, of course, you know this is this is the whole thing—the
1: the the uh, the cutback of the space program. NASA was very very involved in in climate climate research, and uh, we can talk about that after the break.
0: All right, okay, thank you very much for that, Jorge. And we will be right back right after this break with more here on Corbett Report Radio with Doctor Tim Ball.
2: You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network, because you can handle the truth.
0: Welcome back to the program, friends. It is Corbett Report Radio, and we are here tonight with Dr. Timball of drtimball.com talking about climate change and re- water resource management and sustainable development in Rio plus 20 and many other things besides. Uh, anything you'd like to add to the discussion that we were having before that break, Dr. Ball?
1: Well, it, it's just that um, uh, every time they came back from the moon with with samples, um, and by the way, one of the most interesting one was, of course, that um, Delikosky predicted they'd find hydrocarbons on the moon, and official science said, no, it's rubbish. And, of course, what did they find but hydrocarbons? But they also brought core samples back and those were used to um, reconstruct the uh, uh, the solar pattern. The regolith, uh, the, the, which is the debris on the surface of the moon, uh, provides a very good source of that. So th- that was one of the things that was done, but there, there are other things going on. But Jorge's um, comment about uh, who's going to do this, of course, is very, very much to the point. Um, just to finish up, I wanted to mention that NASA, of course, uh, two reasons. I think they were very uh, much into the weather and climate. And they produced a superb book uh, back in, in in the late seventies uh, um, on on sun weather and climate. But the there two things one one was of course the they needed to know the depth of the atmosphere for the frictional effect on their orbiting vehicles, and that varies of course with the temperature of the Earth. They also needed to know about the weather patterns in the launch but they also became very, very afraid that uh, somebody was going to point the finger at them uh, for causing the climate change with the exhaust they were putting out, not only in the lower atmosphere, but particularly in the stratosphere, where uh, small amounts of gas relative to the very thin atmosphere are significant. So NASA has been very, very much involved in the whole climate issue right from the start.
0: Very much true, and of course we see some of the uh, the people in NASA who have become sort of icons of the climate change movement, and uh, I, I don't know if we want to get into specific characters or not, but I think the point is generally well taken. But, yeah, well, like, of course, yeah. Just to, to add to that, uh, James Hansen,
1: of course, who is the head of NASA GISS, which is the Goddard Institute of Space Studies, he, is, he was the one that started the whole uh, thing in 1988 before Gore's committee, when he said that he was certain that... Uh, that humans were causing the change, and he no justification for that. And of course, he's also been involved in in the record keeping, which is what uh, we talked about with Jorge and how how limited it is. But uh, yeah, we, we there are there are many many people that uh, need to be held to
0: account. Indeed. Well, let's get back to the water issue, because it is one that it obviously strikes so close to home for, for everyone in the world, who, of course, does require water to live. And we have really seen a coordinated effort in recent years to convince us that there are a greater amounts of uh, of flooding events and, conversely, drought events. And uh, specifically, we've seen lots of uh, di- dire warnings about running out of water in Australia and other such places. But uh, perhaps you can speak to the, the situation and whether there really is a dearth of water uh, available to us.
1: Well, No, there is no no dearth of water. One of the things that um, you need to watch in so many of these issues, and particularly when politics are involved, is it's the things that they leave out, the things that they avoid talking about that are really the key to things. And it's almost like the magician, you know, uh, keeps you looking at his left hand while he's doing things with his right hand. And and that is so very true. I mean, just to illustrate my point quite simply, they focused on CO2, and yet it is less than 4% of the greenhouse gases. The most important greenhouse gas is water vapor. It's 95% by volume, and uh, that illustrates the the issue. And, of, of course, the question is, why do they effectively ignore water vapor? And the answer is because they've got no real measures of how much there is in the atmosphere at any given time, how much is moving out of the oceans into the atmosphere, how much energy it's transferring, and so on. And you end up with a very bizarre um, situations, such as um, in their reports they said that uh, with global warming there would be an increase of droughts. Well, that's... Uh, uh, Contradictory in the sense that if the world is warmer, the air can, uh, more, there'll be more evaporation of water and the air can hold more water. So there would be less droughts, not more. But it, it all speaks to that issue. And the other thing, of course, is that, and I know this from having worked with farmers and foresters and other people, all the focus is on temperature. And all the focus is on warming, and the question is not only well, what about cooling? And now we're starting to hear some of that. But what's the precipitation going to do? That's what um, what we need to know for the flora and fauna. And and of course, the if you think their their records are bad for temperatures, it's far worse for precipitation data. Uh, for example, Africa hasn't even got the minimum number of stations. That the World Meteorological Organization requires to to produce any scientific research on on precipitation patterns in Africa, so the whole continent, and and of course, so this is one of the problems with what's been going on with the corruption of of climate science, is they focus so much on a that political agenda. of C O two is causing all the problem, and oh, don't, don't look at anything else that um, we really, it set the research back uh, horrendously. And and so, of course, the the idea of of water, uh, the evaporation of water, the major transfer of surplus heat energy from the equatorial regions to the deficit in the polar regions is by the evaporation of water and the transport of that heat in, in the air as latent heat, and then when... When the water vapor, that's water as a gas, condenses back into a liquid and falls as rain, then that heat is released back into the air. And um, and so all of these things have effectively been ignored and pushed aside. And um, and so this is why they're able to get away with these uh, illogical claims that a warmer globe would create more droughts, It's just simply not the case.
0: Indeed not. Well, you're a popular man tonight, uh, Dr. Ball. We have another caller on the line. We have John in Canada. So, John, thanks for joining us tonight.
3: Thank you, James. Um, hello, uh, Dr. Ball. How are you, John? Good. I-, I was at the University of Winnipeg in the uh, early 80s. And uh, I used to sneak into your geography and uh, uh, whatnot classes in the uh, large uh, auditoriums. Because uh, a friend of mine uh, told me, You got to come in here, Dr. Ball. And uh, and I did, and you you hooked me into a concept of uh, long cycles. And I could never shake that out of my mind. And, uh, uh,
1: uh, yeah, John, uh, first of all, uh, thank you. Uh, um, You can't. Know how flattering that is to a professor to have students sneaking into his lectures. Normally, they're trying to sneak out, so I'm enormously <laughs> uh, But and I apologize for the putting something into your mind that you, you can't shake loose of. Because um, I used to, I normally tell people that um, after hearing one of my lectures, the scars will eventually heal. But to, to get to your major <laughs> point, uh, John, um, is that. Um, uh, The idea of cycles was a big debate at that time, and, of course, it's it's pushed to the side right now, but should be discussed, so I'm glad you called about it. Um, There was a thing called the Milankovitch Cycle, which was the idea of changes in the Sun-Earth relationships, that is, the orbit of the Earth changing, the tilt of the Earth changing, and so on. Mm -hmm. And it's now pretty widely accepted that that is a major cause of long-term temperature change on the earth uh, but at that time um, it, it wasn't accepted and um, and of course in the 1990s uh, the Soviets as they were then and, and I had worked with some of them were doing some first-class um, climate research as were the Chinese and I'd worked with them as well but they believed that that um, they, there are cycles um, but there are so many of them and they're so interwoven and overlapping that until you get a really good idea of what's going on you can't separate them out but um certainly the milankovitch cycle which is now pretty well accepted by everybody um oh, no, length, yeah. well, 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 it, there, there are different lengths of them john the the orbit of the earth around the sun is about a 90 to a year cycle Mm-hmm. But but you got to remember that sounds like a long time. That that's going from almost circular orbit to extreme ellipse and back to circular again. So it's a complete um, pattern. Right now we're close to circular. Twenty thousand years ago we were much more elliptical, and of course that affects the climate. The tilt of the Earth is is about a a forty thousand year cycle. Um, and that is from a, a maximum of twenty four point four to a minimum of twenty one point eight, and back again. And then there's another thing called the precession of the equinox, that is on a nineteen thousand year cycle. So that the um, the date on which the uh, solstices occur uh, will change through uh, you know completely over nineteen thousand years. So midsummer's day now, nineteen thousand years from now, now will be midwinter's day. And uh, so Milankovitch um, worked all of this out, and, as I said it it, it 's now generally accepted, but those are the sorts of cycles and by the way, and i 'm glad you brought this up, John, because in the computer models that they use for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they do not include the Milankovitch cycles in those models. Now, there are computer models that do include Milankovitch. But they argue that oh well we're only talking about fifty to a hundred years of weather, so we don't that's too long a cycle. But if you know that the orbit of the Earth changes every single year and the tilt changes every single year, then fifty to a hundred years it does become significant. So this is an example of what uh, we've been talking about in the program. So uh, John, thank you so much for sneaking in, and I hope the scars will eventually heal. <laughs>
3: Thank you so much, Dr. Ball. I only talked to you briefly once and I wasn't even in your class. Oh, thank you. Thank, thank you, you very so much. Sir.
0: Excellent. All right. Thank you so much for that, John. It is great to hear that kind of feedback, isn't it? But it does bring up the larger point, point, uh one that I think we discussed when we, we met in person, Dr. Ball, and that was uniformitarianism and that sort of overarching philosophy which has taken hold of the public imagination when it comes to these types of scientific issues when it nec- doesn't necessarily need to be there. Perhaps you can speak to that issue.
1: Well, of course, uniformitarianism, it it, it almost sounds like a religion, and it has effectively become one. It's the idea that change is very gradual over long periods of time, and it was uh, developed by the um, Scottish uh, philosopher and geographer and geologist uh, Playfair, and, of course, it was done in conjunction with um, Lyell, the geologist that influenced uh, Darwin so much. And, of course, um, it got built into the whole... uh, Western scientific view of the world that changes very gradual over long periods of time, um, that uh, was starting to be challenged again about that 1990s that I talked about earlier with the cycles uh, coming in, um, because um, they they started to suggest that maybe chaos theory uh, was was uh, the way that the earth system worked, but um, the majority of people still think that change is very gradual over long periods of time, and in in fact, it's not true at all. The reality is that change is dramatic and in relatively short orders of time, and and so what this has allowed them to do is to suggest that any change that seems sudden or dramatic is not natural. And uh, yet when you look at uh, a longer period of record, we talked earlier about how 30 years was totally inadequate, um, you, um, uh, you see that, as I said, sudden and dramatic changes occurring all the time. Uh, what's remarkable about the Earth system, of course, is the buffers that it has built in, its resilience to absorb these changes, but nonetheless they do occur. And uh, so that that's part of what's underlying uh the exploitation of today, so they can show you a natural event, and uh, because it ha you haven't heard about it before or it hasn't shown uh, shown up for a thousand years, they could argue that it therefore it's unnatural, therefore it must be something humans are doing
0: and could that also be used in this uh, water management uh, paradigm that they're trying to build up?
1: Oh, absolutely! Uh, you, you know, uh, you, you're starting to hear stories. Uh, Whatever there's a uh, a story, it, say a drought. They'll all say, "Well, oh, this is the worst drought since." And um, but of course, uh, a lot of the times they're they're almost laughable. You know, they say this is the worst drought in thirty years. Well, I mean, yeah, hello. Um, and and when you one of the things you're going to start hearing is that um, we're. They're already pushing it a little bit. But the droughts that occurred a 1,000 years ago in parts of the world, when the world was much warmer in what was called the medieval uh, war period, um, the droughts that um, seriously affected civilizations, the American Southwest, for example, um, and other parts of the world, the Mayan Inca, the influences of that on civilizations. Because, of course, water is is critical to civilizations. And, um, and so you, you can see the pattern of droughts around the world, and, and of course, the, the, the variation in the degree of the drought is, is uh, remarkable over the course of history.
0: Well, that, that's exactly right, but again, it goes back to the fundamental point that so few people are versed in that history or even aware of what history means in this context and think of 30 years as a representative sample of history when we're talking about geological processes. Yeah,
1: and, and it, you know, it, it it depends a lot upon what you do. I mean, there's it, it, very interesting, a study done amongst farmers in the U.S., and when it came to temperature, uh, going back over the years, uh, they could remember the very hot years or the very cold years, uh, but that, generally, they didn't have a good memory. But when it came to precipitation, they could remember every year. And, of course, that's because it was so critical to them. And uh, so people tend to notice the things that... Um, um, are important to them. But the other thing is that you can, you can live in a world not be aware of something, and then somebody points it out to you, and you say, Oh my goodness, we've all experienced this where you're introduced to somebody, and it seems like, um, you know, every time after that, you, you see them. They were always there. They were just not part of your world. Well, what's going on now, of course, is every single weather event that occurs, and, and it, it, it's amplified by the media. I mean, look, you, you, you watch the media, television, Fox News, have extreme weather. Well, no, it isn't. It's normal weather. not extreme. It, it just puts the wrong spin on the whole thing. It's like, oh, well, the hurricane. Well, yeah, hurricanes are normal. And if you live it, in a exactly hurricane, region, you're right. going
0: yes, to they try to paint everything as if it's some sort of magnificent thing that's never happened before in history. But, but of course, it's it, just it, a matter it, of it, semantics. And that's exactly. something that... Scientists should be able to look through. But, but you raise an interesting point insofar yeah. as, as given how far detached a lot of us are from the climate and from the weather uh, these days with our societies becoming more and more urban, uh, it does make yeah. you wonder if we can be more easily suckered into these types of uh, oh, absolutely. false paradigms. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: All yeah, right. Well, maybe worry.
0: that's a thought for the final segment. We have uh, just one more break coming up, and we'll have a few minutes after this to wrap things up. Once again, here with Dr. Tim Ball at drtimball.com. So I hope you'll all go check drtimball.com out for his articles and writings and thoughts on a wide range of subjects. And once again, we'll be right back after these messages. Back here on Orbit Report Radio for the final few minutes of tonight's broadcast, and once again we've been talking to Dr. Tim Ball of D R T I M B A L L dot com. So, Dr. Ball, just in the final few minutes here, wrapping things up, we are facing the Rio Plus Twenty conference coming up uh, later this year. So perhaps we can talk a little bit about what you expect to come in the near future regarding this unfolding agenda.
1: Well, I, I think what you'll see is, is as I said, a, a, a gradual uh, shift away from the climate issue. Um, they realize, and you see some of the people already uh, jumping off that sinking ship. And, and of course, then they will re- recall or bring forward the water issue. Um, I got a quote here from Mark de Brul, who was a member of the Club of Rome in 2008. He said, is, "Is water an issue with this?" Con-? He was asked. Is, water an issue with this consultation process in the general program of the Club of Rome, he replied, resources include water by definition. Well, we have within the club very distinguished members who already years ago draw our attention on the problem of water. And, and of course, all of those things have been transferred into uh, the uh, Agenda 21. And the thing to watch with the Agenda 21 um, is that they wrote, wrote out a set of principles and principle 15 uh which is worth is the one to really look at because it uh, is really putting into a bureaucratic rule um the precautionary principle because basically what it says is look you you don't need um uh, any science or any evidence all you need is is a potential threat to the environment to act and uh so uh, that that's the um the, the frightening part about it, and I think that you'll see water being brought forward more and more as an issue at that particular conference and um, and as I said what what we need to do is to get people informed about what 's going on and we didn't get a, t- a chance to talk about uh, some of the places where these ideas have been being put into practice uh, that was um, the NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, was was all about water. We already had eighty percent free trade between the two countries, Canada and the U.S., and and uh, and of course Mexico at the southern end of that. But between Canada and the U.S., we had eighty percent free trade. So the question was, what was left to trade? And when you learn that. The two negotiators, the chief negotiators for the free trade between Canada and the U.S., one was Simon Reisman for Canada, and he had uh, worked under contract to um, the Grand Canal Company, which was a company that is planning to dam up James Bay, pump out the saline water, and fill it with fresh, and then pump that south through the Chicago River and into the American Midwest and he was the chief negotiator, and he'd been on record saying, I can guarantee free trade if we give the Americans access to our water. On the American side, the the negotiator was Clayton Yeuter, who had been the Secretary of Agriculture under uh, Ronald Reagan, but he had done a doctoral thesis on the need for a continental water policy. and um, And so when you've got both negotiators on each side of the table, Very heavily steeped in in water as their careers, um, then it it really just says it all, and and of course um, the the way that people say well it's hardly mentioned in the free trade agreement well remember my earlier comment about um, it's not the hand they're waving that you got to watch it's the other hand you got to watch, and all of the elements for um, uh, water across in NAFTA are there, commodities have to be traded across the border. And pipelines are part of the boat carrier and so on. And, I, and, and so these are some of the things that we need to be looking at. Absolutely, and uh, And
0: unfortunately it is such a vast topic that there's no way we can do it justice in just this one hour, so hopefully we can have you on again in the future to talk more about it. Once again, I will suggest people go to drtimball.com and click on the Donate button to help contribute to Dr. Ball's Legal Defense Fund, because of course he is under attack, because he has been one of the loudest voices standing up since long before the tide turned on this issue. But on that note, we're fresh out of time, so thank you all and take care.